brothers and uh, sisters in Christ, I'm sure that, uh, that all of us here this morning know full well that life is just full of ups and downs. In fact, sometimes it feels like we're riding on a roller coaster. There are new babies who are born, but also loved ones who die. We rejoice at a wedding, but yet lament at a divorce. There are times of celebration and times of tragedy, of prosperity and of hardship, of health and sickness, of joy and of sorrow. Sometimes everything's going great, isn't it? But before long, we face struggles of every kind. But alongside of this, we also experience the ups and downs of faith. There are periods in our Christian walk where everything is good and positive. We're on a spiritual high. We're on fire for the Lord. We feel that we are just so close to him. We take delight in God's word and in prayer and in worship. These are times when we overflow with hope and with joy. Our obedience is easy and we are just so keen to serve. But friends, there are then other periods when we're filled with despair and with doubt. That's when God seems distant. He doesn't seem to care or to be active in our lives. Our hearts grow cold. We find no pleasure in our devotions or even in coming to church. We're just going through the motions. Our minds fill up with questions and we quickly fall into sinful habits. We become so down and so selfish and so critical. You know, these ups and downs of life and of faith don't always go hand in hand, do they? Life may be sweet, but yet we might be spiritually cold and focused on worldly things. Or there are times when life may be tough, but yet we've never felt closer to the Lord. You know, I'm sure that all of us have been through these things, both the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. But you know, if that's the case, then we should be able to relate to Old Testament Israel. Because they too experienced the roller coaster of life. There were periods when things went so very well for them. We can think of the time of Abraham and how God blessed him with offspring who would eventually become a great nation. We can think of the time of Moses as he led his people into freedom and of Joshua as they entered the promised land. We can think of the reign of King David and how the nation prospered and how that even multiplied during the reign of Solomon. We can think of times of great revival under Hezekiah and under Josiah. But yet there were other periods when life was terrible. For despite the blessings and the privileges and the promises, God's people were always so quick to rebel and they suffered hardship and misery as a result. There was that terrible captivity in Egypt and then the 40 years of wandering in the desert. There was the division of the kingdom when 10 tribes formed Israel in the north while the other two became Judah in the south. There were years spent under leaders who didn't serve God, but rather worshipped the gods of foreign nations. 
Then there was the fall of that mighty northern kingdom as they were conquered by Assyria and taken off into exile, never to return again. And finally, in the year 586 BC, there was the fall of the southern kingdom as they too were exiled to Babylon. And so in Psalm 137, that psalm made famous by Boney M, it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord? while in a foreign land. Just like us, these people experience some tremendous highs, but also some very deep lows. And so we should be able to relate. But we should also be able to relate to the book of Malachi. For Malachi comes right at the end of this long, turbulent history, which is why it's placed as the last of the minor prophets, and at the conclusion of the entire Old Testament. You see, even though the remaining people of Judah had gone into exile in the year 586 BC, there was still another period of blessing. For you see, in 539, the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians. And at that time, the remaining Jews were allowed to return to their own country. Despite everything that had happened, the Lord had preserved a small remnant of his people and he had allowed them to go back to the promised land. And on top of that, they could rebuild their beloved temple, which had been destroyed. And they were able to live again as God's people and they were able again to worship him. And we can read about those things in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the problem was that over time, things started to go sour again. The people had been blessed, but yet they were dissatisfied and they were despondent. They were small in number. They were small in territory. They were not overly prosperous, nor were they free of foreign domination. The temple was less glorious, and the Lord seemed to be absent. His promises appeared to have been forgotten. And so they began to have doubts about God, and they fell back into their old sinful ways. It's into this situation that the Lord sent the prophet Malachi, so what we find in this book is a, is a Q&A, a Q&A with God. We find the remaining people of Israel expressing their misery and their doubts and their sinfulness in a series of provocative questions. They ask the Lord, how have you loved us? How have we shown contempt for your name? How have we broken your covenant? How have we wearied you? How are we robbing you? How have we spoken against you? And that's the structure of the whole book. But what we also find are the Lord's clear and indisputable answers. For in this book, he directly confronts his people about their doubts and their rebellion. 
in this book, my friends, the Lord seeks to reignite their faith and to set them back on the path to, to commitment and righteousness. And my friends, I hope that you can see that this is a message that we still need to hear today, just as they needed it way back then. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so this morning we're going to be looking at Malachi 1 verses 1 to 5 and I would, I would urge you to keep that open in front of you. It all begins in verse 1 with an introduction. It's a prophecy, an important message from above. But the word prophecy could be translated as burden. This isn't just any message, but it's a difficult message. It's a warning that must not be taken lightly. We're also told that it is the word of the Lord. This message is coming directly from Yahweh, their covenant God. And it is coming, he says, to Israel. Even though they were just a tiny remnant of Judah, they are now the entirety of God's people. And so the Lord refers to them as Israel once again. And this prophecy comes through Malachi, the prophet of God, whose name literally means my messenger. So my friends, how does God's message begin? Well, not as we may expect. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Despite all of Israel's failures, their defiance, their stubbornness, their grumbling, the Lord yet begins with this glorious statement. He reminds them that through it all, he has maintained his faithfulness and his affection, his concern and his care. Through it all, he still loves his people because his love never fails. But then we immediately discover that the problem isn't with the Lord, but the problem is with his people. For he then says, but you ask, how have you loved us? As a result of the distance they'd put between themselves and God through their own rebellion, these people actually convinced themselves that the Lord didn't care, that the Lord didn't love them. And so we have their first question. But my friends, can't we do the same? We've seen God's love in the Bible, in the Gospel, in the cross of Jesus Christ. We have experienced it in our own lives and in our own hearts. But yet, when a time of trouble comes, we can quickly begin to doubt. We go through a period of hardship or frustration or tragedy and we can ask God, how have you loved us? We get bad news from the accountant or from the doctor or from the judge. And we can ask God, how have you loved us? We can experience loneliness or betrayal or abuse. We see relationships crumble. We see the church struggle. We see the world in chaos. And we can ask God, how have you loved us? Just like Israel long ago, we too can travel through some very deep valleys when we question the very things that we have built our lives upon. 
when we question the very love of our God. But how then does he respond? Well, he doesn't condemn them for the question, and he doesn't ignore them either. But rather, the Lord proves to them that his love is real. And he proves to them just how amazing that really is. He starts his answer by pointing back to two people from their history. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Well, the people knew the answer to that, and I'm sure many of us do too. Of course they were brothers. They were twin brothers, the sons of Isaac, the grandsons of Abraham. But yet despite this, God did not treat them in the same way. For he says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So what are we to make of that? Well, we need to understand that this is the language of covenant. The Lord is saying he chose Jacob to be his own, to be in relationship with him, to receive his blessings. But he didn't only choose this man on his own, but he also chose his descendants after him. Jacob, you see, was blessed with 12 sons who grew into the 12 tribes of Israel and who in turn grew into this great nation. And so Israel would always be his special people, chosen to carry his promises. But yet at the very same time, the Lord saying that he did not choose Esau or his descendants, the nation of Edom. Now, what did this mean for Esau? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. Esau I have hated, and I have turned, <coughs> excuse me, I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, the people always under the wrath of the Lord. God did not choose Esau or Edom, and as a result, they did not receive his blessing, but his curse. History records that around the time of Malachi, the Edomites were attacked by other nations, and eventually they were forced out of their homeland. And so Esau's country indeed became a wasteland and his inheritance a home to the jackals. But yet the people of Edom, they thought they could defy God's judgment and they could rebuild. But the Lord makes it clear that his judgment cannot be resisted. And so if they rebuild, he will demolish. This sounds incredibly harsh, doesn't it? I mean, why would God randomly choose to reject one brother, even the older brother, and the nation descended from him? From him? Why would God punish them so severely? Well, my friends, we must understand that this would only be harsh if Esau and Edom were innocent, if they were punished for no reason. But the reality is that they were in fact an evil and a sinful people who fully deserved everything they got. 
For a start, in Genesis 25, Esau himself showed contempt for God, selling his birthright for a plate of stew. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, See that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. But Esau's offspring were no better. You might think that they would be a people who would support and and protect their Israelite cousins, but nothing is further from the truth. There are many, many passages about their wickedness and they deserve judgment. Already in Numbers chapter 20, as God's people were, were delivered out of Egypt, Moses asked Edom to allow them simply to travel through their territory on the way to the promised land. And this is what it says. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. Nice cousins they were. But the the lowest point came when, when Judah went into Babylonian exile. In Obadiah it says this, In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, because of the violence against your brother Jacob? You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. And again, in Psalm 137, it says this, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. My friends, Esau and Edom were not rejected for nothing but because they were immoral and wicked, because they were an especially harsh enemy to God's people, because they were particularly rebellious against God himself. And so it is with good reason that God says they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. But now, of course, we need to ask ourselves, why on earth does the Lord mention all of this when he's telling Israel about his love? Is it to show them that Jacob was better than Esau? To show them that that Israel was better than Edom? And that that's why he loved them so much while hating the other? Well, no, that's not the message at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The Lord mentions all of this in order to highlight the fact that Jacob was no better than Esau and Israel was no better than Edom. Don't you remember how in Genesis 27, Jacob disguised himself as his brother to deceitfully steal his father's blessing? Don't you remember how the entire Old Testament is is like a litany of the failures and the rebellion of this nation. They actually deserve the very same judgment and the very same punishment as Edom, if not more. So do you know what that means? My friends, it means that when the Lord says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, what he's doing is reminding them 
of just how amazingly blessed and privileged they really are. For they are the ones that the Lord chose to be his very own. They are the ones he chose to deliver out of slavery and to give a glorious inheritance in the land. They are the ones who he chose to carry his promises down through history and to shower them with his love. And he did all of that even though they didn't deserve it at all. Even though they deserved the very same fate as Eden. And so the passage concludes, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. But my friends, this is the very same message that we need to hear today. For life is most certainly full of ups and downs. And so there are times when we struggle. There are times when we can doubt God's love. Maybe you're even wondering about that this morning as you're sitting here. But in such times, the Lord tells us to look at the proof. For my friends, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, then then we are in fact spiritual descendants of Jacob and we are part of God's new Israel. And so the Lord tells us, remember, remember that I've chosen you. I've taken you out of your sin and I've set you on the road to eternal life. I have forgiven you. I care for you and I bless you. But not because you're worthy. You haven't earned my favour. In fact, you deserve the same fate as the rest. But yet in my mercy, I have chosen you to be my very own. And this is the ultimate proof of my love. Friends, this is what we call election. Election is the biblical truth that in his divine wisdom, already before the creation of this world, our Lord chose those whom he would save, chose those to whom he would give faith, And he chose them not because of any merit, but only because of his grace, only because of his love. That's what we read about in Romans chapter 9. There the Apostle Paul makes reference to this passage in Malachi. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, (coughs) but Esau I hated. God's purpose in election is to choose those who would be his own people, Those reconciled to him and made righteous in his sight. And not because of anything they've done, but simply because that was his decision. That leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Isn't election incredibly unfair and unjust? How can it be right for God to choose some to be saved while others are left in sin and judgment? 
Well, God knew that we would ask that question, and so he goes on in Romans to answer it. Paul writes, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You see, the fact of the matter is, my friends, that if God was going to be completely fair, then he wouldn't save anyone. If God was going to be completely fair, then he would leave all of us to face the condemnation that we rightly deserve for our own sin. But doesn't that then help us to understand just how amazing his grace truly is? For while no one deserves salvation, yet in mercy and in compassion, he has chosen to save some. And that is his sovereign right because he is the Lord Almighty. And that, my friends, is why he sent Jesus. For while we could never deal with our own sin, Jesus could. Jesus could do so on our behalf. He came to suffer at the hands of men. He came to suffer the wrath of God. And on that cross, he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. On the cross, he purchased the salvation of all who believe, of all whom God has chosen. My friends, our salvation truly is in Christ alone. Congregation, we all have times when, like the people of Israel, we go through hardship and troubles, and the Lord, it seems, has forgotten us. We experience doubts and we're tempted to ask, How have you loved us? Well, friends, let's listen to his glorious answer today. God has shown us the depths of his love by choosing us to be his own people, his precious daughters and his precious sons. He selected us to receive his richest blessings, to be forgiven, to know his protection and his guidance every single day and to look forward to an eternity in his presence. And we did not deserve it a bit. We can't earn it with our obedience, with our good works, even by the strength of our faith. The only thing that we deserve is the fate of Esau. But yet we have been given the blessings of Jacob. And it's all by God's mercy compassion and grace. My friends, this is the Lord's electing love. So when you go through that valley of doubts, remember this awesome truth. The Lord, the Lord has chosen you. He has saved you by the blood of his son. He has blessed you in every possible way. Nothing you do can make him love you anymore. And nothing you do can make him love you any less. For my friends, God is for us. His love is perfect. And he will never, ever let us go. Let's pray.
Almighty God and loving Heavenly Father, we admit before you this morning that uh, there are times when we have doubts, when we wonder what you're doing in our life, when we feel like you've forgotten us or rejected us, when we wonder how do you love us. But Lord God, we pray this morning that you would fill us with a deep understanding and a deep appreciation, a deep gratitude for your love in our lives. For Lord, we realise that we deserve nothing, but yet you have given us everything. Lord, that we deserved condemnation, but you have given us your salvation. Lord, that we deserve to be cut off from you forever, but yet we know you in our lives we have your Holy Spirit in our hearts and we are heading towards that day when, when we will be, dwell with you forever in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. Oh Lord, how wonderful that will be. And Father, we recognise that we have all of this, not because of anything worthy in us, but we have it because of Christ and we have it because of your electing love. Lord God, we pray, please help every person here to just know how much you love them, how deep your love is, and how your love will never end. Lord God, help us to know this when we go through the valleys, but also not to forget it when we are on the mountaintops. Lord, we pray, help us to know your love in our lives today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.